there's also another handout for this session. Well, even more complicated diagrams on it. And again, you can do with that as you will. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you again that you are a speaking God. And uh, we pray very much you'll be opening our ears to hear this afternoon. Uh, We pray that uh, you would speak powerfully, uh, that we are moved and changed. And in particular, we pray that you might change our minds. And change our minds about how we think about time and history and all that you are doing across time and history through the Lord Jesus Christ and where we can fit into that and align ourselves with it and become part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, how does a typical person think about time? What I mean is that when people discuss life, uh, either when they're chatting with one another one-to-one or, or whether they're writing about things or more generally um, in the media, what do they imply about time and history? And I'm not think, asking what they think about time in, in sort of big, abstract, conceptual or philosophical terms. I mean, what do they really think about the past and the present and the future in, in, those, in the relevance of those things to them as people? as decision-makers. Well, one possibility is that they think about it much as I've, I've pictured time in that, in that diagram on your handout. I think it goes like this, isn't it? For many people, the past is pretty much irrelevant. It's at best a curiosity, an interest, uh, something you might have a hobby in, but not necessarily anything that affects what you do. In other words, it has no direct impact on my decisions today. Likewise, the distant future is largely irrelevant. The economist John Maynard Keynes expressed it for us all when he said, in the long run, in the long run, we are all dead. And then in between those two irrelevances, if you like, uh, there's a little window of opportunity. There's a brief window to make something of. There's the time that runs between now and that moment when we die. Although it has to be said, the way we think about the, the end of that period is also uh, rather fuzzy. We tend not to want to think about at uh, that moment at all if we can help it. Uh, it's not that I'm afraid to die, said Woody Allen. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And if that is the way that people think about time, and I think it, it largely is, uh, what impact would we then expect it to have on their lives? Well, here are some suggestions. Number one. This is going to make them anxious. Now, in many places today, and for much of history, uh, this will be anxiety about mere survival, anxiety about what to eat or drink or wear, anxiety about where to find shelter or warmth or help. Uh, Of course, in Western societies today, such anxiety still persists in different forms. We might not be quite so anxious about those things, but we can be anxious about maintaining a particular lifestyle or a particular social position. And the basic anxiety is about death and illness and loss of dignity still persist. One of the main motivations, it would seem, behind seeking assisted suicide would seem to be this deep anxiety that we have about losing our dignity. Number two, 
aggression. Indeed, we might call it an animal-like aggression. As animals fight over a kill, you know, so they've made a kill in a pack, say, and uh, there's only so much food, and the amount of food that they're going to get is going to depend on how hard they fight for it. There's only so much to go around. Likewise for us, there's only so much food, there's only so much wealth, there's only so much esteem. So we fight for it. And learning to fight for it, it's sometimes called assertiveness training, is in fact big business today. Uh, Let me read you some extracts from, from a book that's called How to Be Assertive in Any Situation. This book claims to be the key to self respect and self esteem. Take control of your identity, runs the blurb. Begin to live life the way you want it. And this book will give you the tools to live a happy life. And of course, that book is not alone amongst many of a similar kind. Number three, what is this view of time going to do in us? Well, I think it will lead to recklessness. A little while ago, my wife Catherine was listening to a to the radio about a website called uh, Infidelities. It arranges, it's extraordinary, I'm not making this up, it arranges adulterous relationships, a bit like a dating agency. Now that, I guess, is shocking enough. But the reasons that people gave for using the service were even more shocking than that. These were happily married people using the service. But they were saying things like this, I only have one chance at life. I only have one chance to experience the thrill of an affair. Number four, things to do before you die. If you browse the Amazon website, you'll find literally hundreds of books with titles like 101 Things to Do Before You Die. Uh, These kind of books have become an epidemic. You may well find yourself getting one at Christmas, having to throw it straight in the bin. Unforgettable places to see before you die. 1,001 songs you must hear before you die. Unforgettable things to do before you die. 101 whiskies to try before you die. 50 books to read before you die. Unforgettable journeys to do before you die. 1,001 movies to see before you die. And so it goes on. This desperate desire to squeeze certain experiences in before it's too late has fueled millions of midlife crises. Gareth, take notes. Without it, there would be no top gear. Without it, there would be no luxury travel around the world. There would be no bungee jumping. New Zealand would lose its reason to exist. (laughs) Number five, despair or hopelessness. Now, this is a more rational response, I think. Maybe that's the way I'm wired. There is a depression which is entirely reasonable. It's not at all a medical condition. If time is as we've pictured it here, then to feel despair or hopelessness makes a lot of sense. But of course, we don't like to feel despair or hopelessness. This, I think, helps to explain diversion and entertainment as diversion, why it's such a key focus of our lives. It helps to explain our restless addiction to certain kinds of distraction, to say compulsive buying or pornography or drink or drugs. Now, these are not new observations. Uh, Back in the 17th century, the very clever French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal made some very similar observations 
uh, in his time about the issue of diversion. This is from notes at 139 of Pascal's thoughts or pensées. Why do we seek diversion? Why do even kings seek diversion? Pascal says this. Why do kings have jesters? And he writes, I found that there is one very real reason. Namely, the natural poverty of our feeble and mortal condition. So miserable, so miserable, you see, wired a little like me, so miserable that nothing can comfort us when we think of it closely. Whatever condition we picture to ourselves, we muster all the good things which it's possible to possess. Royalty is the finest position in the world. Yet when we imagine a king attended with every pleasure he can feel, if he be without diversion and instead left to consider and reflect on what he is, this feeble happiness will not sustain him. He will necessarily fall into forebodings of dangers, of revolutions which may happen, finally of death and an inevitable disease, so that if he be without what is called diversion, he is unhappy and more unhappy than the least of his subjects who plays and diverts himself. Now, despite what I've just said, these talks are aimed at encouraging you and encouraging you to persevere in discipleship and to be equipped for mission through the uncovering of God's purpose in the, purposes in the world through his word. The first talk was about understanding how God's words divide, how we shouldn't be faced by mixed responses to his word, how instead we should make every effort to be on the right side of the divide. This talk is going to be much more about understanding how God's words envision, how his words uncover the truth about time and history, And this is a truth which shows up the poverty of the secular view of time and indeed should radically change how we think about life. So the purpose of this talk is really quite simple. It is to change your mind about time and history. That is, in as much as your view of time and history does not comply with the view of time and history as God uncovers it in the Bible, I want want to bring you to think what you think to back in line with what he wants you to think. I'm going to argue this in five steps. It goes like this. So number one, Jesus' second purpose in speaking in parables as given in this chapter of the gospel is to uncover what has been hidden since the beginning of the, crea- since the creation of the world. Uh, like Asaph, who was one of the uh, psalmists, like Asaph before him, is especially uncovering the truth about time and history. In these particular parables, he's uncovering the future of history, the future of the kingdom the certainty of God's future victory and a future point in history when those aligned with God are separated from those who are not. But again, what Jesus does in these parables, he is also doing more widely in his preaching. And God does more widely across the Bible, uncovering for us the truth about time and history. So, change your mind about the future. So first, let's take a look at the second purpose that's given in this chapter for Jesus speaking in parables. Here's the second reason why Jesus is speaking in parables. This time, it's given in a little editorial aside by Matthew, uh, beginning at verse 34. Matthew says this, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. 
he did not say anything to them without using a parable. And so was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophets. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Jesus speaks nothing to the crowd apart from using a parable, on this occasion at least. We were saying this morning that's going to divide the crowd. Those without ears to hear will, in the end, hear nothing, go away disappointed. But Matthew's comment here points to a more positive purpose for him speaking in parables. For those to whom the secrets of the kingdom of the heavens are being given, Jesus is speaking wisdom. He is opening up secrets and explaining riddles from the past. Now the prophet that Matthew quotes from here is Asaph, who is the author of Psalm 78. That gives us a big clue about what kinds of secrets Matthew has in mind at this point. It suggests that at least a part of the reason why Jesus is speaking in parables is to uncover the truth about time and history. See, that's what we find when we turn back to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is the central psalm of the 11 psalms of Asaph in book 3 of the psalms. And it's an extended meditation on the history of Israel. Asaph is uncovering the history of Israel for those who have hidden it away and forgotten it. In particular, he's recounting how Israel in sin forgot the Lord and then under David remembered the Lord and rediscovered the power of the Most High. And he's implying, as he retells that story, that the people of God in their current crisis, and he's probably speaking in a time of exile, need to remember those things all over again. That is uh, very typical of the Psalms of Asaph. For me, Asaph is one of the great, great heroes of the Bible. Uh, What he's trying to do for himself and for the people of God Um, I guess it's what we might call these days um, something like cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT. I don't know if you've ever come across this. Uh, CBT was very trendy not so long ago. I think it's still quite well regarded as being effective therapy technique. But we find the original and best practitioner of this here in the Bible. You see, what Asaph does in his Psalms is to expose his his irrational fears and thoughts and to bring to bear on them rational truths about God. And as he brings those things to bear, that changes his emotions and his behavior. So he's responding to the crisis which he finds himself in, the crisis most probably of of a people forced into exile. But he is responding to that openly and calmly, and rationally, by meditating on time and history. He's remembering the past, in particular, past judgment and redemption. And so he comes to trust future judgment and redemption. So Psalm 73 is a very famous example that you you may well know. Asaph is, you might remember, being very nearly led astray by the wicked, who seem to be prospering. It's easy to be jealous of the, the wicked when we see them prospering. And as he does, as he looks at them, he feels hopeless, he feels embittered, he feels wounded inside. That's the kind of language he's using. But then at the turning point of the psalm, he enters God's sanctuary and he suddenly understands the face of the wicked and is restored by God. He understands what's going to happen to these people in the future. He's given a glimpse of how time and history will work itself out. Psalm 77 is another very striking example 
It's with Asaph moving from, uh, from despair, and he's very open about his despair, but he remembers God, and he remembers history, and this remembering of time and history gives him hope in the present. So coming back to Matthew chapter 13, what Matthew's saying is that what Asaph began in his reflections, Jesus is completing. And I want to suggest that one of the key ways that Jesus does that in the parables of Matthew chapter 13 is by uncovering the future of the kingdom. What's more, the pattern of time and history that he uncovers is wonderfully simple. It's simple, for us, simple enough for us to bring, uh, to bring quickly to bear in any difficult situation that we find ourselves in. I think it goes like this. There are two phases of time and history that really matter. There is now. There is the now when things are obscured and difficult for the disciple of Jesus. And then there's this future when all will be uncovered, when vindication comes, when those opposed to God are separated out and destroyed. Now let me show you that from, from the chapter itself. Let me show you that first in the future uncovered in the parable of the sower. Now we looked at this this morning, so I've just summarized the division we saw in that picture you got on the handout. So some seed, and the seed represents the message or the word of the kingdom, remember? Some seed is sown, but there's a division in what happens to it. Some seed is eaten, some is scorched to death, some is choked to death, but some survives and prospers and yields a substantial crop. Now, I think that that implies basically a kind of two-part time frame. There's a, there's a time of growing, if you like. Then there's harvest time. Jesus doesn't explicitly call it a harvest here, as he does in some of the other parables. But we are, in a sense, invited to inspect the field at the end of the parable. Uh, we see that some plants have indeed died, and we see the plants that have prospered. However, I should make it clear at this point that not everyone would agree with what I just said. Um, so Tom Wright, for example, who's a former bishop of Durham, thinks that the time frame implied in this parable is quite different to that. Uh, it goes like this. So the Lord spoke to his people in the past over and over again, and they didn't listen. There was no fruit. Uh, but now as Jesus preaches, the kingdom is the time of fruit. In other words, the parable is telling, if you like, the history of Israel in miniature. Now, I don't want to dismiss that completely, and there may be something in that. But I do think it may, that is probably too narrow, too narrow way of taking this psalm. I'd argue that it doesn't seem to be the point here, the narrow point about the history of Israel. And you'll notice that in the story you have these different responses happening, uh, not consecutively, but if you like, simultaneously. Jesus has also said in verse 19 that the seed represents the word or message of the kingdom. And of course, widely broadcasting and proclaiming that message is what Jesus has been doing ever since chapter 4 of the Gospel. It's therefore much more likely that the soils correspond to the different responses he has been receiving as he's been doing that work. You know, that just fits the context much better. Many of those responses, as I was saying this morning, have been negative. But for those to whom Jesus is uncovering the secrets of the kingdom, for his true disciples, Jesus is expressing through the parable that he is confident that the message will survive and prosper into the future. What's more, that basic two-stage pattern is confirmed as we look at the other parables in Matthew 
13. So not only the wider context points that way, but the immediate context points that way as well. So take the parable of the weeds, for example. Now, I suppose if we're being a bit pedantic here, we could discern three phases of, of time and history in this story. So first, there's a time of sowing. A man sows a good seed in, his, in, in the field. His enemy sows weeds in the same field. Um, these are called tares in some of the older translations. They're probably a type of ryegrass, uh, which looks much like wheat in its early stages of growth. But secondly, there's a time when the, both the wheat and the tares appear and a decision needs to be made about what to do about them. But the owner says, do nothing, verse 29, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. And then thirdly and finally, there's a time of the harvest, when the tares are very obviously distinct from the wheat, and they're collected first, tied in bundles to be burned, and the wheat is gathered and brought into the barn. And the explanation of the parable that Jesus gives is in verses 36 to 43. We do indeed see that it's the final two phases of that pattern that really matter. In other words, there's a time when the sons of the kingdom, sown by the Son of Man, live alongside the sons of the evil one, sown by the devil. The second phase is, verse 39, then the end of the age, the time of a separating judgment in the future, And those who are opposed to God are thrown into the fiery furnace, but those aligned with God will live in the glorious kingdom of their father. So two phases. Uh, The good alongside the evil, and then the separation in the future. Let me suggest that this is really Psalm 73, updated for us by Jesus. Uh, So much as in Asaph's time around us, there is all uh, wickedness and evil, and it appears to be prospering. Um, Just take one example. We're pretty clear now uh, why the current financial crisis happened, why we're in the situation that we are. But we ask the question, have those who were responsible for the mis-selling of debt that led to the crisis, have they been taken to task? Has justice been done? Uh, Well, not really. And some of them seem to have done very well out of the whole business. Uh, Like Asaph, we could feel very hopeless in the face of that kind of thing, embittered, wounded inside. You can sort of see that on the faces of the people who are sort of campaigning around St. Paul's Cathedral. But for us, it is different as disciples of Jesus. We have seen and heard what Asaph longed to see and hear. We've heard verse 42 and seen the clearest picture of what will happen to evil. Remember, Asaph goes into the sanctuary and it kind of comes to him that the wicked must surely perish. But Jesus gives us this completely explicitly. This is what's going to happen. And so we hold back from switching sides. We turn to the parables of the mustard seed and the the leaven. I think we can also see that there are two phases. So verse 31, a man plants a mustard seed in a field. Uh, Verse 33, a woman takes some leaven, mixes it with some flour. That's the first phase. Second phase, verse 32, the seed has grown grown into a tree. Verse 33, the leaven over time has worked its way all the way through the dough. Imagine uh, taking a pile of salt and uh, each grain of that pile of salt represented one person in the United Kingdom. I don't know how big that would be, about so big, something like that. Imagine covering all the grains of salt 
that represented someone who is firmly committed to Jesus Christ. Would we notice them? Would you actually see any difference in the pile of salt? That would be a very depressing thing to do, wouldn't it? A very depressing exercise. But we have heard verses 31 to 33, and we have seen the future. The future is one in which what seems tiny becomes visible. And what seems invisible works its way through to everything. And so we do not lose heart. Likewise, you've seen the same pattern in the parables of the, of the hidden treasure in the pearl. Phase one again, beginning of verse 44, man finds treasure in a field, hides it again, goes and sells everything he has. Beginning of verse 43, a merchant finds a pearl of great value, goes away to sell everything he has. Phase two, end of verse 44, having sold everything he has, the man buys the field, gains the treasure. End of verse 46, having sold everything he has, the merchant buys the pearl. Do you feel impoverished, shabby, uneasy in your low-to-middle income social status? I guess many of us here might feel that way. Well, now you've seen the value of the investment that you have in the kingdom. And you can feel joyfully poor. Finally, in the parable of the dragnet, uh, there are also two phases. Phase one, verse 47 The net is let down into the lake, catches all kinds of fish. Phase 2, verse 48, the net is pulled to the shore. The good fish are collected into baskets. The bad ones are thrown away. And Jesus explains that just as in the parable of the weeds, this is also a picture of the final separating judgment at the end of the age. So putting all this together, we're basically talking about two phases in this time frame. There's now and there's some point in the future. Now is the time of mixed responses of the good mixed in with the bad, the sons of the kingdom living alongside the sons of the evil one, of growth that is hidden or unimpressive. Now is also the time of fruit-bearing for the disciple of Jesus. It's also the time of waiting and patience. The future is the time of final uncovering, of final separation. The mixed responses are shown up for what they are. The bad is separated from the good and destroyed. Growth that was hidden or unimpressive will then be shown to be far-reaching, even glorious. And I hope you can already begin to see that without that future vision, it would be very difficult for disciples of, of Jesus both to persevere personally as disciples and to engage in the task of disciple-making. Without the future vision, the Christian life will be one of constant discouragement. People you once trusted fall away. Evil appears to survive, even sometimes prosper. The kingdom cannot be seen, and what we cannot see we find hard to believe. But with the vision firmly in place, we have a framework in which such things need not discourage us. However, taken on their own, these parables do leave a number of unanswered questions, don't they? Uh, In particular, I guess that the main question you might have at this point is, well, how far away is this future? And these parables do not give us a clear answer to that question. On the one hand, the parable of the weeds and the parable of the mustard seed seem to imply a long wait. It takes time for these things to grow or spread. The, the, The owner of the field 
has to wait until the plants are full grown before he can go and separate the wheat from the tares. On the other hand, the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl, the parable of the dragnet, suggests a much, perhaps a much shorter time. The man and the merchant get their hands on the treasure and the pearl within their own lifetime. It doesn't take a very long period to drag in a, a net so that fish can be separated. So which is it? Is it a long wait or a short one? Now, in a moment, I also want to show you that what Jesus is doing through these parables, envisioning us, is something that he also does in his wider preaching. Indeed, what Jesus does in his wider preaching, uncovering time and history, just one instance of what God is doing is for us across the Bible, progressively uncovering time and history. So I do want to make that point in a moment, but I also want to tackle some of those unanswered questions raised by these parables. But I think we can do these things together. You see, as we step back to observe what Jesus does here in uncovering time and history, as we step back to see how he does that across Matthew's Gospel, not just in the parables, we also get a much more complete picture of how that future is going to map out. We get some of the details filled in. So let's take a look at that as we finish. What Jesus does here, he does more widely. I've been claiming in this talk that one of Jesus' purposes in speaking parables is to change our minds about the future, and in particular, the future of the kingdom. Well, if we step back and look at the gospel of Matthew as a whole, we find that that has been one of his primary purposes right from the beginning. Jesus' first major command in Matthew's gospel in uh, chapter 4, verse 17, repeats the call of uh, John the Baptist in chapter 3 to repent for the kingdom of the heavens is near. That is, literally, change your mind. Uh, That's the word that we have uh, translated uh, repent here. That's what it actually means. There may be a number of other things that come into uh, your head as you hear that word, uh, repent, but put those to one side for the moment. What Jesus wants first and foremost is a change of mind. And just as we've been seeing in in chapter 13, he wants a change of mind concerning the future. Why should we change our minds? Because the kingdom of the heavens is near, Jesus says. Now that little phrase, the kingdom of the heavens, is Matthew's way of talking about some point in the future when heaven and earth are reunited. This is what we pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reuniting of heaven and earth, when God's unopposed uh, rule in heaven extends over all things, when his authority in heaven and on earth is fully and properly recognized. We can make a good case that this language about the kingdom comes predominantly from the, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And that helps us to see how what Jesus says about the kingdom of the heavens is very strongly connected to what he goes on to say in the gospel about the coming of the Son of Man. So I put an extract from Daniel chapter 7 up on the screen. Because we know that from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that it's when one like a Son of Man approaches the agent of days, coming with the clouds of heaven, that he is given dominion over every nation and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. In other words, the language about the the kingdom in the Gospels and the language about the coming of the Son of Man and the person of the Son of Man are very tightly connected. 
So I hope you can begin to see that in the big picture across the Gospel of Matthew, the same questions that we've been grappling with in chapter 13 emerge. The kingdom is near, says Jesus. But exactly how near? The Son of Man is coming, says Jesus. But when exactly? In chapter 10, Jesus tells the disciples that they will not have finished going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. It's going to happen soon, he seems to be saying. But then in the parables of chapters 24 and 25, he does also hear that there's going to be some delay, that they'll need to wait, to be patient, to persevere. In chapter 24, he says that only when the gospel of the kingdom has been preached to the whole world will the end come. This sort of material can be very confusing to us. And uh, you'll hear different people tackling it in different ways. And it may not surprise you, although it should bother you, it may not surprise you to learn that a mainstream view in biblical scholarship is that it doesn't make sense. And that Jesus was indeed a failed apocalyptic prophet. That he came and he predicted the near end of all things within his generation. The separating judgment of God coming soon, imminently. But that he was proved wrong. And when he was proved wrong, his embarrassed disciples massaged and added to his teaching all this additional material that we find in the Gospels implying some sort of delay. And the end result is this sort of untidy and inconsistent mishmash. That is a mainstream view in biblical scholarship. But I want to say to you, perhaps not surprisingly either, no. Jesus was a successful apocalyptic prophet. Indeed, he was much more than a prophet, as we shall see in a moment. Time and history have unfolded just as he said it would. And I've tried to summarize how they have done so in that diagram on your handout. Another complicated diagram for you to struggle with, but I hope we can make some sense of it. Now, we don't have time this afternoon for me to demonstrate to you uh, in full that this is indeed the, the pattern of time and history which Jesus establishes in the Gospel of Matthew. But I believe I can demonstrate it to you uh, in part simply by looking again at the verses from the end of the Gospel that we were looking at this morning. Because if you turn again to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, uh, keep your finger in chapter 13 again, uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, you can see that at the end of the Gospel, at least some of the things we would associate with the the coming of the Son of Man uh, from Daniel chapter 7 have indeed happened. Remember that Daniel 7 told us uh, that uh, once the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days, he would be given dominion over every nation. Or look here at verse 18. This is what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he sends the disciples out into every nation. This idea that some of Daniel 7 at least has been fulfilled by the end of the gospel uh, fits with some of the other things in, in, in that we see in the chapters leading up to this point. So, for example, as Jesus dies in Matthew's gospel, there's, there's darkness, there's the earth shaking, 
uh, much as Jesus said it would at the coming of the Son of Man. Since then, his opponents have been proved wrong. The temple has been judged. Its curtain has been torn from top to bottom. And Jesus has been vindicated. He's been raised from death to life. By the end of the gospel, there is a sense, this isn't the whole of the story, so we'll come to in a moment, there is a sense that the Son of Man has come. The kingdom has drawn near. And it has all happened within a generation, just as Jesus said it would. But you can also see here from chapter 28 that there is a longer time horizon also in view. There is unfinished work. Jesus may have the dominion, the authority, but that dominion is not yet fully recognized across the nations. For that to happen, people need to be made into his disciples. And that's that task that Jesus calls the eleven to participate in. And he promises to be with them in that work to the end of the age. Now this is very exciting, I think, because what it shows is that Jesus has been much more than a prophet. He hasn't merely predicted what's going to happen in time and history. It's as bold as this. He has set and created what will happen in time and history. Uh, The simple pattern that we've seen in Matthew chapter 13 of a time of mixed responses, the good mix with the bad, of fruit bearing, of waiting and patience, uh, at that time of tribulation and suffering, we might call it that, followed by a time of fulfillment and vindication and judgment, you know, those two parts, well, he has completed that first in himself. And by completing that in himself, he has set it as the enduring pattern for his disciples who follow him. So he completes it in himself in the, in the top line of this picture, if you see. But that then sets the pattern for the rest of history. So that as he lived and proclaimed and made disciples and persevered under persecution in the top line of that diagram, he has been teaching the disciples to proclaim and make disciples and persevere in the similar but subsequent mission to the nations on the bottom line. And when that work is done, Jesus has said, then the end will come. And this, I hope you can see, is a very different way of thinking about time and history uh, to the one we began with. You see, if this is the true state of affairs, uh, then it changes everything. Jesus began his public ministry by calling out, change your minds, for the kingdom of the heavens is near. And at the end of his public ministry, we see that in his death and resurrection, the kingdom has indeed drawn near. The kingdom figure, the one like a son of man, has been vindicated. And the kingdom remains near for us, not necessarily temporarily, but in the sense that it encroaches on our decisions now. It should shape our emotions and behavior now. What Jesus has done guarantees the future. It means that future judgment is real. Guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Future resurrection is real. It has been guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let me just finish with some suggestions about how this should change how we think. So where there was once anxiety, now there can be confidence 
because we have seen the future. Where there was aggression, now there can be peace. There's not a lot of point, is there, in fighting for a bigger slice of the pie now. It's the pie in the future that matters. Where there was recklessness, now there can be self-control. Where we once struggled to experience as much as we could before it was all too late, now we can begin the experience of enjoying faith, anticipation, and expectation. And where there was despair and hopelessness, now there can be hope. And may the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him, so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.